Welcome to Toenails, a podcast about running and also not about running. I'm your host, Sydney Allen Ash, and before we get into it, I have to divulge some personal information that will either completely discredit me or make me uniquely qualified to talk about the subject matter at hand in this episode, which is data and what it does to us. You be the judge. Okay, story time. I am not a numbers person, and I'm not even talking about anything advanced like being a finance major or an Excel wizard, but really just like on a base level, engaging in the quantification of daily life, measurements, estimations, and numerical tracking of any kind are things I struggle with. I am, you could say, quantitatively averse, and this has been apparent my whole life. I did not ever truly care about my grades. I was a horribly imprecise sewer in fashion school, you know, a quarter of an inch, a sixteenth of an inch. What's the difference? I have only ever seriously tracked my weight once, which is when I needed to maintain a weight class when I was boxing competitively. I have never tracked my steps, my sleep, my sunlight exposure. Who does this? No one does this. With any degree of seriousness. And don't even get me started about budgeting my spending. I download a budgeting app under a false sense of responsibility like once a quarter. In January, I spent hours crafting budget categories, cosplaying as someone who was careful and wise. Then I abandoned the app weeks later. Maybe this is just my Sagittarius rising speaking, but I feel like spending money, eating food, living life is supposed to be done within the hedonistic blur of pleasure, not the careful scrutiny of an Excel spreadsheet. I could be wrong. Anyways. This quantitative aversion is, as you can imagine, a bit at odds with just like one being an adult human in this world. There are lots of numbers out there. And two, a point more specific to this episode, avoiding numbers is a challenge when it comes to being an athlete, which I have been my whole life. As an athlete, you're supposed to understand the potency of your ability through numbers, wins, losses, points, degrees of difficulty, rebounds, split times, heart rate variability, the list goes on. Our focus on numerical evaluation is supposed to say something about not only our athletic skill, but, more importantly, our level of commitment to the sport itself. For a lot of reasons, which we'll get to in this episode, I have a big problem with this. But, more generally, I just have a question. Save for the very small percentage of us that are professional athletes, this podcast is not really about you, sorry, what does collecting all this data even do? What are we trying to optimize? Why are we all working so hard? I say we because I am a part of this. My experience as an athlete and more specifically as a runner has always had a quantitative, largely digital mirror. It's how I got into running in the first place. For context, it's been nearly 10 years since I found running through a global community of running crews which have since dissolved or drastically changed. We found each other first on Instagram, back when Instagram was fun. Does anyone remember those days? And later, we met in real life at an ad hoc event series called Bridge the Gap, taking place around the world. My first Bridge the Gap was in New York for the Bridge Runners anniversary in 2014. I was so young that I used a fake ID to get into Gold Bar. Then, my hometown crew of Parkdale Roadrunners hosted one in Toronto in 2015. Around the same time, I went to Chicago, then after that, London and Denmark, the list goes on. Over a span of a few intense years, we stayed connected by following each other on Instagram, adding each other as friends on Nike Run Club, 
and running and partying together whenever we could. Nowadays, crew culture has largely dissipated, but the impact of this remains. I have found friends, lovers, even jobs from it, this podcast being one of them. Thanks, Yale. This digital context was formative to my running and to the culture as a whole. It was this global network of crews that were instrumental in popularizing running for a millennial audience in the first place. That being said, running culture changed drastically since this particular peak of about 2012 to 2015, and the obsession with running apps has faded in my world. However, this surge for quantification not only remains, but has grown way bigger than running, impacting everything from how we do our jobs, how we find relationships, our education, cue everything piece about data ruining our lives ever written. But that's not really what this episode is about. I am, like literally everyone, critical of how my data is being used on apps and online. Sure. Or at least I feel like I should be. But focusing on that in this episode or in this podcast in general feels like a futile line of investigation. So instead, I want to go wider and look at where the desire to collect data even came from. Why do we want to quantify our hobbies? to optimize them. What is driving this urge in the first place? And those questions led me down a rabbit hole that we'll talk through in three acts. Let's get into it. Act one. Any conversation about numbers and sports should probably start in 2011 with the movie Moneyball or maybe a decade before that in 2003 when the book came out and changed sports forever. Starring Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, Moneyball is a movie about a low-payroll baseball team that became competitive by finding underappreciated cheap players through data. These players were good, but they just weren't evaluated correctly. And finally, someone with power, the sun-kissed, sinewy, visor-wearing Brad Pitt, found them and put them to use. So it's a sports story for sure. But it's also about errors in judgment and the status quo, and about the new way of counting things. Major League Baseball and its fans, they're going to be more than happy to throw you and Google Boy under the bus if you keep doing what you're doing here. You don't put a team together with a computer, Billy. No? No. Moneyball's about the quantitative revolution in baseball, in this case, but really everywhere. Deeper than that, Moneyball is not actually even about baseball. It's about behavioral economics, the psychological and emotional inputs that go into our economic decisions. It's less about balls and strikes than the biases we have to count certain things and not others. It's about Billy Bean, that's Brad Pitt's character, being charming on the phone, sure, but it's also an invitation for us to look at why we stick with some potentially outmoded definitions of success when perhaps maybe we shouldn't. Billy, you got a kid in there that's got a degree in economics from Yale you got a scout here with 29 years of baseball experience. You're listening to the wrong one. Adapt to die. And so Moneyball is really a story about sports and not about sports. My favorite kind of story. It's about capitalism and decisions and the slow, steady, then fast evolution of quantification and its role in sports and athletics in general. But Moneyball's hardly where the main stage love affair between sports and economics began. 
In the late 19th slash early 20th century, industrialization led to the creation of connected international markets, where a shrinking number of hyper-efficient competitive companies owned a larger and larger share. By the mid-1900s, big corporations were growing in every major sector. Competition and efficiency was the name of the game. Please forgive me. And sports were not immune to this process of economic rationalization. Economic rationalization, by the way, is when a company gets reorganized to increase its revenue, decrease costs, and improve bottom line. This is what happens when firms hire fancy consultants with MBAs. It usually results in mass layoffs and maybe a couple of other things. Anyways, alongside this streamlining of markets, society was also becoming more homogenized, more efficient, with the rise of mass culture, mainstream radio, mass media, and movies, and this greatly impacted sports. Sports teams that were once purely local in scope, barnstorming teams playing in just about every town, were now elevated to the national stage as major leagues consolidated their businesses and broadcast games, like the World Series, on the radio. Good afternoon, baseball fans. Now, instead of being satisfied with local amateur clubs, people wanted to know which teams and which players were the best. Americans were doing what Americans do, fetishizing and cataloging accomplishments. And they demanded records, like who hit the most doubles, which rotation was best, who were the world champions. And satisfying these demands required order and rationalization and standardized data. They needed statistics. Fun fact, statistics, in the modern sense of the word, came from the need for sovereign states to have data. This is relevant later. So, baseball, along with football and hockey, became standardized. And all this talk about which player or team was better than the other was amplified and defined by the data. I find this incessant chatter to be an incredibly unfortunate quality of mainstream sports culture. But looking back on its history, I'm thinking maybe this was the whole point. Who was winning was important, not just for some dad's ego in St. Louis, but because sports were big business. For owners and athletes, but mainly owners, there was money to be made. As markets congealed across America, professional sports between 1900 and 1950 narrowed themselves as well. The leagues we know now all started during this era. Major League Baseball, as we know it, came into existence in 1901. The NFL, in 1920. The NHL, in 1917. The NBA, rounding it out, formed in New York in the late 1940s. This was the beginning of big sports. However, to paraphrase a line in one of my favorite sports books, Winning is the Only Thing, by Randy Roberts and James Olson, Sports leagues, in contrast to, say, you know, like big 1950s companies, General Motors or U.S. Steel, were essentially monopolies. The sports leagues were exempt from shareholder influence, unions, or antitrust law. Player unions didn't become a thing until later. Fun fact, Major League Baseball remains to this day the only legal monopoly in American business. So despite their standardization, professional sports leagues were actually a lot closer to 1800s robber barons like Rockefeller than the corporate managers of the 40s and 50s. A line in the book describes these mid-century sports owners like medieval manor lords owning their own estates free of external interference and manipulating the lives of their serf employees, end quote. Owners had total control over athletes' lives and livelihoods. It was so exploitative that, quoting from the book again, in 1887, a star pitcher wrote an article titled, Is the Ball Player Chattel? 
in response to him and his colleagues being sold or traded between clubs against their wishes. Athletes couldn't leave contracts or negotiate salaries. They were bound to the reserve clause, a sort of lifetime contract which the pitcher compared to fugitive slave law that, quote, denies a player a harbor or livelihood and carries him back bound and shackled to the club from which he attempted to escape. Fast forward to now, and exploitation is still present in pro sports. Things are better, but also more noxious. While men's professional athletics tends to garner incredible salaries, the athletes still don't get to choose which teams pick them, and they don't have great rights, and equal pay among genders is definitely not there yet. For those of us who cannot hit a baseball 500 feet, we get to deal with Facebook, Google, Uber, and Amazon, equally monopolistic entities who are powerful employers and have surf-like employees. They've all had public bouts with union busting, and the last two especially, Uber and Amazon, may be the worst culprits in terms of inhumane working conditions in the name of efficiency. You don't need a PhD in economics to see how the decline in organized labor, the rise of vertical integration, multinationals, and the loss of retirement benefits are examples of efficiency at work, the bottom line and quarterly profits ruling at the expense of everything else. And efficiency is shaping every area of culture. Main streets look homogenous and bland in just about every city. Popular music is less varied than ever. The Netflixization of film has algorithms creating whole movies. And media, well, you know that one, we have clickbait. All of this is happening because we're drilling down decision-making around one variable, profit. Instead of triangulating that with things like, I don't know, humane working conditions, creative integrity, sustainable growth. So because of this, uh, fulfilling work has eroded, wages have stagnated, and pensions are gone, replaced by salaries that don't allow for homeownership and have lousy benefits or no benefits at all. We work in rented apartments for ourselves or 10 other bosses, busy enough to keep the lights on and maybe go out to the movies. Like ballplayers in the 50s, we lack collective agency. We're on-demand workers working alone, orienting our lives around monetization in an effort to make ends meet. God, this is depressing. When I started research for this episode, I knew that other sports histories could help me understand how things are right now. I mean, they're all connected. But I honestly didn't think I would find a mirror for our job insecurity as well. But there's more after the break. Act two. Okay, so professional major league sports are not the same as professional running, I know. And neither of those are much like amateur running either. So why did I tell you all this? Well, the moneyballing of the major leagues is important historical context because it offers us a well-understood example of how economic forces shape our leisure pursuits. Let me take you back to the 60s. Around the same time, sports was getting professionalized with bigger front offices, strength coaches, and increased television revenues. The modern first fitness tracker was invented in Japan called the Manpokai. 
It came out in 1965, had a 10,000-step daily goal, and it cost 2,200 yen, which is about a college grad's starting salary. Despite this, it was very popular. The birth of the first modern fitness tracker indicates a notch in a timeline where the economic rationalization that took over professional sports crossed over into the recreational realm. If you listen to episode one, you'll know that this also coincides with the birth of jogging. It was the late 60s, early 70s, and America's growing love of sports meant that participation in athletics was an identity marker in more ways than one. Not only a signifier of dominance between cities, but also a signifier of status and virtue amongst your peers. As a leisure class of wealthy white professionals fled to the newly created suburbs, businesses targeted this group of consumers with a range of products and services that fulfilled the spiritual void of their sterile, sterile lives. So alongside the commercial growth of things like jogging, but also cycling, jazzercise, and swimming, there was a rise of specialized products like running shoes, trackers, workout equipment, Walkmans, and more. Conspicuous fitness was the accessory to the successful yuppie lifestyle. Hi, I'm Judy Shepard Missit, the founder of Jazzercise. I want to what was and is critical to understand is that the public display of it all, jogging through clean green lawn suburban streets, wearing fancy tights or a pedometer, continues to be a virtuous performance of self-discipline. And this blow-up of the 70s and 80s was just the start of the profitable panopticon of fitness. Now, let's cut to 2013. Just a couple years after Moneyball came out in theaters, when statistical analysis had pretty much taken over the sport and made it into a data-driven product. This is when data took over everything else, too. Big apps, the rise of Uber... Facebook hitting a $65 billion valuation, Strava and Nike Fuel Band both picking up steam, that one Gauthier song. This was when Instagram was fun. It had just been bought by Facebook and we were all on it. We posted our silly little runs with our silly little Nike Run Club graphic overlays. We showed off for ourselves, for others. I remember feeling that I had to record my runs, so the work I was doing would not go to waste if a tree falls in the forest type shit. Does this sound much different from the first-gen pedometers and conspicuous jazzercise gear? Not so much. 2013 was around the peak of my Nike run usage. I made and maintained friendships with its help, like I said. I was in university at the time, and I remember skipping class to run half marathons and eke out a number one or number two spot on the board, just for a day, till someone lapped me. My experience in the digital mirror to my running universe made me feel connected to other people and aware of my place amongst them, sure, but also proud of my progress in an area not connected to my income. Running was an outlet for stress and anxiety, an escape from depression, but it was also a compulsion and at times maybe a performance, a way to feel like I was taking care of myself while also proving how committed I was to that care by showing off the numbers. In hindsight, this swirl of feelings around the conspicuous nature of our digital lives, probably very familiar amongst runners and non-runners alike, was an early spike on the graph line of the surveillance capitalism chart. About that phrase. Surveillance capitalism describes an economy where the primary commodity that's for sale is personal data. This should be pretty obvious to most people at this point. This phrase is from Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff and is the title of one of her books. Surveillance capitalism, or sometimes we'll say SC for short here, is just the way things are. 
Thinking about SC for me brings up a whole mess of issues around privacy, democracy, human rights, things that are outside of the scope of this podcast. However, even when narrowing in to the role of surveillance capitalism in sports, it goes a lot deeper. Surveillance capitalism has furthered the destruction of the social safety net, the growing gig economy, the co-option of every area of our lives into a revenue stream, and it turns out the creation of lots and lots of fitness apps. After Moneyball, we got surveillance capitalism. And somewhere around that time, we also got all of these. There's Whoop, launched in 2012, valued at $1.2 billion. Strava, 2009, worth $1.5 billion. Nike Run Club, 2016, a new version of Nike Run Plus that launched in 2012. And the Nike Fool Band came out a few years earlier. Apple Health, 2014. The Fitbit itself was launched in 2007 and sold to Google for $1 billion in 2019. There's also MyFitnessPal in 2005, sold to Under Armour for half a billion in 2015. And there's Zombies Run, which I know you all know about, so I won't have to define. Kidding! Uh, Zombies Run is a little-known running fitness tracker where you're incentivized to stay on pace by an audio track that plays a story about you being chased by zombies. It was launched in 2012. A million people bought that game on the App Store. It was about $3.99. Are you one of those million? If you are, please message me. You could call this the beginning of the modern era of exercise tech. The very start of the age in which the average runner's experience in the sport was mediated by a full tech immersion. And while some of these did better than others, Zombies Run, surprisingly, one of the less popular fitness trackers, and the launch dates do differ, these apps are all, at base, data products. And while that's a bit obvious, it is important to say, these are not really running or fitness apps, but tech products, examples of surveillance capitalism that happen to be about running. It's surveillance capitalism key feature in practice. Data is so generally valuable that even super specialized niche apps for runners are worth in the billions if they traffic in it. But these apps still apply to running and they help runners track, analyze, and benefit from their hobbies. So the apps help runners and they help businesses. Win-win, right? More on that in our third act after this break. So where does all this leave us? Runners begrudgingly, or maybe not begrudgingly, tracking our runs, trying to get better, but also trying to look better, or maybe not trying to look better, but still maybe looking better, maybe feeling like I should maybe be looking better. It's complicated. These murky feelings reminded me of an article that a friend, Nana, who's a fellow runner in Copenhagen, shared on Instagram back in 2018. Titled In Praise of Mediocrity, it's a New York Times opinion think piece written by Columbia Law Professor Tim Wu. Maybe it's a fluff piece, something people read then immediately forget about, but for me, Wu's piece hit different. And since 2018, I've continued to think about it. In his story, he explains what's wrong with the push for professionalization in hobbies. The pressure we feel to do them and do them well defeats their true purpose. Hobbies, Wu says, are supposed to be fun. Duh. 
He says, the expectation of excellence can be stultifying. Great phrase. You don't have to be good at them to enjoy them. Did you forget that? I think I sometimes do. I've played basically every sport under the sun. Barring the many sports I did in high school to get out of class, which ranged from cross-country to drawing a boat and everything in between. In my adult life, I've fallen in love with long-distance running through Parkdale Roadrunners, yoga at Skyting in Brooklyn, basketball in the beloved Queer League Squish, I miss you Squish, dance hall with Jonah Abrams at Underground, boxing competitively at Sully's in Toronto, and definitely a lot more. I find that I switch to a new sport every couple years because I get too intense about the one that I'm doing and I turn it into a job. What I mean is that even though I'm not getting paid, I professionalize the hobby with goals and rigor and pressure to perform. Wanting to progress is fine, but for me, it takes the fun out of it. I know this about myself and combat the desire to achieve excellence by staying in beginner mode. I trick my brain into allowing and even, God forbid, enjoying mediocrity because I can tell myself I'm new at this. I'm allowed to suck. I don't think I'm the only one feeling this. The pressure for excellence, Wu says, is endemic to all areas of life and leisure in this modern age. If we jog, we have to run marathons. If we paint, we have to get good enough to deserve a show or build up an Instagram that's respectably popping. If you're learning to make music, you're a DM away from features. Are your hobbies making you money yet? Monetizing our hobbies and creating side hustles is, like the apps, an easy thing to make fun of. But to me, this pressure connects directly to Malcolm Harris's writing in a book called Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. Harris writes that this pressure to professionalize hobbies is actually about not being made vulnerable, a way to keep our hope in a broken economy. Not to be dramatic, but this is the lie our generation has been sold. Monetizing our hobbies will not be the way most of us get out of economic precarity. This is treating the symptom and not the cause. Reframed in this light, proving our proficiency and commitment by putting our effort up for display is about protecting ourselves from vulnerability. This line of thinking is a slippery slope. It can lead us to idolizing successful people and thinking that billionaires become billionaires because they've optimized their lives. This guy gets up at four in the morning, so that's why he's rich. This CEO drinks Soylent. In an almost two-on-the-nose example of this, Whoop, a fitness tracker growing in popularity, makes a podcast that is fascinating and also occasionally terrifying, where they have stated that one of their secondary audiences after professional athletes is executive types in high-pressure jobs. While we should be considering the health and well-being of workers everywhere— Let's be clear that no amount of optimizing your sleep routine or whatever will make you a billionaire. In reality, becoming a billionaire is harsh and requires exploitation and inequity on an individual and systemic level. We are all collectively closer to being unhoused than we are to being that rich. In reality, the economy Harris paints is a brutal one. He writes somewhere else, If we're built to struggle against each other for the smallest of edges, then we're hardly equipped to protect ourselves against larger systemic abuses. We're too busy optimizing ourselves to build unions and really get ahead like the pro ball players did. And optimize we have. Going deeper into this rabbit hole introduced me to the world of the quantified self, where people were taking surveillance capitalism into their own hands. Quantified Self was founded in 2007 by a couple of Wired alums as a crowdsourced road to scientific self-discovery. 
People subscribing to the quantified self-lifestyle create informal studies of themselves by measuring their lives and share their findings on the website's forum. I might, for example, log that I got up at six after six hours of sleep with a blood pressure of 160 over 69. That's a number, right? With a heart rate of 80 beats per minute before a run. Uh, Then I ate oatmeal for breakfast and ran 7.5 miles. It goes on forever. Calories in, calories out, how you feel during the day, vitamin levels, and more. The forum, which I have spent several hours engrossed in, reads like most forums do. A range of people all searching for something hopeful in the knowledge of the collective. I read through dozens of studies with a similar hope, that something like the fountain of youth would be hidden there, but obviously it was not. In the end, I found it to be simultaneously heartwarming and depressing to see so many people spend months and even years absorbed in their own data analysis, only to yield slightly self-evident insights, like when I drink at night, I feel sad the next day, or... On days I work out, I am less likely to eat poorly. If we're being generous, and it's free to be generous, so let's do it, these quantified self-studies are surely much more nuanced than just attempts to become more productive. Depending on your situation, taking your stats into your own hands might feel like reclaiming power from big data, reclaiming your well-being from the medical-industrial complex, embarking on a bit of transhumanist discovery, or a wide range of other goals. While the intention may be varied, I think what unifies this quantified self-movement is the desire to figure out how to live well under a hyper-surveilled, incredibly efficient capitalism. And this is a pursuit that is anything but simple. By now, I hope I have effectively immersed you in the same confusion and difficulty that I felt when exploring this question of why do we track data? Finding an answer that addresses the tension between oppressive surveillance capitalism and the potential to reclaim a subversive empowerment through data is a difficult one to navigate. So in February, I called up my friend Ryan Wilms. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get a clean take of you saying uh, your name. You can try and describe what you do, which I know is always a hard thing for people, uh, and say where you are right now. All right. My name is Ryan Wilms. I'm in Los Angeles, California. And I'm a creative director and holistic life coach. And fellow Canadian. Working mostly in the sort of fashion and sportswear and health and wellness space. And you also created Into the Well. <laughs> and I also created Into the Well, which is a editorial platform and podcast. As a lifelong athlete and a recovering workaholic, Ryan and I have some things in common. He's had the same problem navigating the balance between rigor and freedom in sports. And he's trying again in his current training program to compete for a half Ironman. Well, I think my sort of modern day adult movement practice really started about eight years ago when I tore my ACL playing soccer. And it was the first time I started thinking about what am I eating? Am I like going to the gym and just making it a regular practice and running being somewhat of a safe sport in terms of running in a linear direction not a lot of lateral movement, nobody trying to tackle you. Um, I just, I fell in love with it. And uh, I would run on the treadmill in the winter in Vancouver and run on the trails in the summer and started running some half marathons and then some trail half marathons and then eventually did a full marathon in 2015. And then after that, I just, a combination of work, life, um, exercise just went full burnout and mm-hmm. my f- sort of physical health just started 
crumbling around me and I tried to keep up with running and going to the gym and doing what I could. I also moved to New York and took on some work that was, you know, 12 hour days. So moving to New York does not help one's (laughs) health in any capacity. No, it does not. And while I was doing the marathon and stuff, I was using my first ever running watch, but I did not know what it meant. I didn't like people were talking about splits and I, I was like, I don't know. Like, what do you remember looking at on that watch? I w- it was purely just the time, just watching it get faster, trying to get faster. And that was pretty much it. It was just purely start, stop, what's the time at the end of the run Yeah, and the distance. That was it. And I remember in New York, like it used to take minutes for it to like find a satellite or something. I don't even know like why. <laughs> And I remember being outside my apartment in the Lower East Side and like the thing couldn't find the satellites and I just threw it in the garbage can and then went (laughs) off and ran. And I didn't use a running watch for like six years after that. So I really just went into just running to run. And then so I moved to LA just over three years ago and I tore my other ACL. Oh no. About two and a half years ago. So that just totally changed my movement practices. So when you tore the second ACL and you started working with Paul Check, that's kind of the shift in your movement and movement and mindfulness practice, I guess. Yeah. I mean, really the year leading up to that and then from then on was a humongous change in just level of awareness and consciousness, mindfulness, all of those things, really spending a lot of time trying to get out of my own mind and back into my body, into my heart. So there was a lot of like reconnection over that period of time, which has definitely just changed my outlook on everything and approach to everything. I would remember basketball games specifically where I could get into like a flow state and it was very rare because most of the time I was like, I knew I was, you know, six for eight from the, like from the floor, like three for four from the foul line. I had however many points and like, I was hyper aware of it. And Mm -hmm. with baseball, it even like was more intense because baseball is such a slow sport and it's so stat driven. Yeah. And so, you know, I was so in my head with all that stuff. And, and then I think about soccer, which you really can't count stuff like that. And it was so much more fun to Mm me, you know, and then I wasn't competitive in anything for the last number of years as well. And I think like this sort of signifier throwing the watch in the garbage was part of that process. You know, there's Mm -hmm. this like shedding process that we need to go through. And so it's interesting now as I'm stepping back into sort of tracking and, and, and looking at that stuff. But I think, you know, it's all about staying present. I, uh, okay. There's, there's a noise happening in the background. Do you know what it is? Is it like a chair? It is my chair. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's fine. It is what it is. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't like someone banging on your door or something. Yeah. I'm going to be as still as possible. Yeah. This is where the meditation comes in. Come yeah. on. You mean, you mean you're not on a yoga ball right now? God, you're a fraud. <laughs> I use a chair. I know. God, how dare you want lower back support? God damn it. Well, I, I do use my foam roller for lower back support on my chair sometimes. Hey, there you go. Yeah. The brand is strong. <laughs> Um, so as you start to embark on, uh, the road to 70.3 and doing, uh, is that half Ironman? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Half Ironman. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're embarking on, on tracking and training and more of a rigorous schedule. Are you 
worried at all about falling back into that mentality of keeping score? It's funny because I don't personally think I'm that worried, but my parents are very worried. Mm. (laughs) They have like said multiple things to me and, you know, them projecting that on me as an adult in this place, I can be aware of that and be like, no, that's their thing. I'm going to leave that over there. But growing up, I would have internalized that. But even the fact that I signed up for a half Ironman instead of a full Ironman off the bat Mm. is like a huge step forward for me. Yeah. It's like old Ryan would have just gone full on, like probably three months out, like sign up for the, you know, full thing. But to give myself 11 months for a half Ironman, I'm like, I feel like, good. That's like, that's sustainable. Like that's a good runway that I can like build up to in a healthy way. Mm. And I was thinking about your question about sort of the tracking and the numbers and getting sucked into that stuff. And it's funny because I was thinking about moving to New York. I moved there when I was 30 years old. And if I would have moved there when I was 25, I probably would have gotten sucked into doing loads of drugs and partying and drinking so much. And just like, you know, that's just what happens in New York. And it's just like probably super fun. But I was already 30 And kind of over that and more interested in in work and being healthy. So I kind of feel like in a way now that I like signed up for Strava three months ago or four months ago, I'm like kind of past the obsessive, especially like the comparing. Like it would be so easy to go in there and be like, oh, this person's doing so many miles and this person's going this fast. And, you know, there's hints of that. But for the most part, I'm like, stoked for anybody else who's on there exercising and I'm so much in my own world you know I'm where I am right now with my practices like especially when I'm starting from scratch with a few of these sports and we're kind of restarting all over with running that I feel like I can hold myself in that space and be okay with it you know stuff does come up like an old friend from elementary school he messaged me on Instagram um And was like, what's with this, like, you know, running and cycling content? It looks like it's just modeling, you know? Oh, fuck that guy. (laughs) You're blocked, sir. And, you know, my initial, like, I feeling is to like, no, man, it's like real. Like, I, you know, defending myself. Yeah, justified. Because I'm like seeing, oh, he's actually like, you know, trying to qualify for the Canadian Olympic team and he's like been doing this for 15 years like he's really a serious athlete and over and we ended up having a conversation and it was super friendly and nice in the end but you know part of me is like oh I like I'm not there you know I'm not that like but that's not my thing and you know I'm going to be sharing this road to 70.3 journey but and my perspective is well starting from scratch this is what happens I'm not a professional athlete And it's like, how can these other ideas of, you know, holistic, sustainable, mindful awareness integrate into something that can be obsessive, that can be really unhealthy, you know, can easily suck you into that fit over healthy um, space. And I feel like, well, I spent the last three years getting healthy. Now I'm ready to get fit with some sort of, you know, deeper purpose and meaning tied into it. And hopefully by sharing that, it just, you know, can help other people, you know, approach their life with a different perspective, whether or not it's a triathlon, it could be anything. 
Um, when it comes to, you know, setting goals and, and striving for something, I'm curious in this path, in this 70.3 journey, what obviously apart from the time that you are aiming for, like a 530, what other goals are you setting and how else are you kind of measuring? I don't want to say measuring success, but how, how else are you kind of marking the different phases of training? What other metrics are you tracking? Like, let's go kind of into the weeds a little bit on this. Sure. Okay. So I guess, you know, as I started getting interested in this, I also read James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really interesting and really good. It's all about creating new habits and goal setting. And he talks about these different tiers of habits. And, and you know, early on, it's like a results-based thing. So like, I want to lose 20 pounds, I'm going to run five days a week, whatever. Then it's uh, like changing your systems is like the second tier. And the third tier is identity-based habits. And that really like struck a chord with me. So often through my own sort of health journey and like problems with digestion and whatnot and feeling like pretty much just internalize all my trauma in my stomach. <laughs> um, and a lot of people do. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And even though I'm like, okay, well, I need to heal my relationship with my inner child and my mom to fix my stomach. I still see an ad and I'm like, oh, that's the supplement that's going to fix me, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Or two weeks of running and I'm like, why don't I look and feel exactly like I want to? Mm -hmm. So doing something like this journey that's, you know, nearly a year long, setting out that sort of, that time period just forces a level of patience. By sort of moving that goalpost and setting it somewhere more solid, I feel like, it allows me to be like, okay, I'm not just trying to run fast to lose weight and feel like I want to feel. I'm trying to become a triathlete. Mm. I want to be like, that's who I am. That's who I am. Like in that can just be an athlete even. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, you know, bringing in the sort of the weird stuff we were talking about before, it's like, how can I do that in a sustainable way? I don't want to just finish a half Ironman in December. I want to do Ironman for the next 20 years. And that goal can shift and change, but it's like, how can I create this to just be part of who I am? And, and what does that say about me? You know, it takes grit, it takes commitment, it takes, um, you know, vulnerability to share. It takes, um, you know, that level of mindfulness to look at Strava or look at my watch and not get caught up in what other people are doing. It takes, you know, it helps temper the ego when somebody runs past me and I know well, I got to keep my heart rate at 140 <laughs> to like stick with my training because if I push past that and I run it up then I'm not going to be able to run tomorrow or I'm not going to sleep well and you know just staying within myself so you know I spent so much time reconnecting to myself and now I'm learning to be with myself. I want to dive in a little bit into the relationship between tracking metrics and awareness and mindfulness because I feel like there's a difference between awareness and mindfulness maybe there isn't from your perspective but I feel like I read I, I heard somewhere on like on some podcast maybe it was your podcast maybe it was whoop maybe it was some other one I don't know now that tracking data is a tool for awareness and I thought that was interesting. Maybe it seems incredibly obvious, but I thought that that was an interesting way of, of framing it, that it's just a, a way of kind of reflecting yourself back to you, you know? Um, and I think that does depend on what data you're actually tracking. But 
does tracking any type of metrics and data, does that help you feel more mindful? Uh, yeah, you know, that's interesting to make the distinction between those two. And I'm just like trying to process that as you're talking about it, I guess it's like mindfulness is like the integrated process of awareness. Mm, say more about that. Like the more you're aware, then the more you can be mindful, the more you can make mindful choices as in conscious choices that are sort of inspired by awareness. And awareness is tricky because the objective truth is pretty impossible for us to understand through our minds, right? So that's where data, I think, is useful because it's an objective truth. Hmm. Interesting. And I'm thinking of, I use like Garmin to measure my heart rate and pace and things like that when I'm running and riding and, and that. And I use an aura ring for sleeping. And so I can wake up and be like, oh, I think I slept okay. Or I can look at the numbers and be like, well, this is objectively, you know, the stats, this is, I slept this long and this much was deep sleep and this much was REM. And this is how many times I woke up in the night or, or whatever it is. So I think that that idea that data is a tool for awareness is, is good because it's a tool. It doesn't do anything like you mentioned, knowing that doesn't do anything, you know, and it's like, Doing an ayahuasca ceremony might not actually do anything, but you have all of this insane objective awareness of truth, of what is real. And then you have to integrate that. And that is done through being mindful and being conscious. Mm. So it's as though you all of you have all these tools at your disposal whether they're quantitatively tracking or they are illuminating some aspect of yourself in a more spiritual mm-hmm. sense um like mm-hmm. like you've talked about with plant medicines um and I'm, there's many many others and they are they are uh providing input they're providing data you know quantitative or qualitative data and it's up to you to figure out how to act on that data Yes. And I know I would even go further than that is like our mind is a tool. Mm. Like we aren't our thoughts, you know, as like a classic sort of saying, and that comes from our mind. So like our mind is a tool. We have to train our mind. Like, you know, the, the aura ring or the Garmin watch is like the tool that we need to sharpen the sword, which is the tool for going to battle. Right. So it's like we need these tools to help us sharpen our mind as a tool so that it's not taken over and running the show. Have you ever been in a situation um, where you've felt that something that you've done, either, you know, your recovery or your run or your swim or your whatever was really positive and really good? And then you've looked at the data and been like, oh, not so much then. What do you do in moments like that? Um, That definitely does happen for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I mean, on one staying present in that experience, you know, and like, if it was enjoyable and it felt good, then that's real. Mm -hmm. So don't, don't throw that in the garbage. (laughs) And then beyond that, I think, you know, just like thinking about like the other factors, like 
did I get in a fight with somebody at work? Did I mm. sleep okay? What did I eat? You know, all of, there's never one thing. I always like if I feel good one day, I'm like, oh, what did I eat yesterday? Like, mm. what did I do? I try and figure out. That's my mind's like default system is trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And it's never one thing. So just trying to be aware of those different factors and be like, okay, well, maybe it was this, maybe it wasn't. And unless we are going to like journal it and really use these tools to connect the dots and have that more sort of objective truth to tap into, it's just going to be guesswork. And I mean, ideally, you know, it's, we get to the place where it's mostly by feel anyways. Mm. And if it felt good and we believed it was good, then that is good. Mm, (laughs) And especially, especially if we're not a professional athlete or something. Especially if you're not getting paid for it, then. Yeah. 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 What happens if you don't hit your 530 goal? I mean, nothing really. <laughs> not, nothing like. Are you me- no. are you like mentally preparing for if that happens, like a mental contrasting situation? Not really. Any and to be honest, in my mind, I'm already like I could probably do five hours. <laughs> <laughs> You're like it's a quick three thirty. I'll be in and out. Yeah. I'll go to lunch. But there's so many factors at play. Like I could get injured again, or my knee might not continue to heal at the pace it's healing at, or. You know, I could get sick or who knows, like it's 10 months, 11 months is a decent amount of time for anything to happen. Or I could go really well and I could feel amazing and I could break five hours, probably quite realistically, I'd say. But something I learned, uh, a term I learned recently, I went to this place called BioCyberNot, which is like a neurofeedback podcast. Sounds like it's NASA. It's crazy. It's very crazy and very amazing. Um, but the Dr. Hart, he talks about engaged indifference. So the idea is that you fully commit, surrender, and pour yourself into what it is you're doing. And you kind of let go of what's going to happen. You know, you don't get attached to the results. And I think that's super valuable in literally every aspect of life. And it's not what we're conditioned to do. It's literally the opposite of that. <laughs> Just like get absolutely fixated on the result. White knuckle through yeah. life. There's this commercial that's been on TV lately. and It's, it's like a maybe a beer commercial or something. And it's like, what if it's not about the end result? What if it's about the journey? I'm like, what do you mean? What if? Like, this is like <laughs> thousand year old wisdom. This is what it is. You know, like it's this, about the journey. It's non-negotiable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I thought that was funny, but I, you know, this idea of engaged indifference is something I'm really trying to embody and, you know, and it, and it, it helps with that idea of, of patience and it helps us. In talking you know, with Ryan, I wonder if you can tell that I felt conflicted. I wanted either a justification of why data was necessary or a validation that it wasn't. I thought about Ryan's running goals and my perception of the gulf between those things. Tracking data and dropping into your heart space are not often found in the same sports conversation or in any conversation. How the fuck does he do that? Ryan, I think, has this admirable ability to focus on both awareness and rigor at once. He sees data as a self-awareness tool, like how in meditation, awareness is placed somewhere specific on the body, like your feet or between your eyebrows, and you try to become more in touch with that place. Using data to get this leg up on your own natural interoception, which is the ability to feel sensations inside the body, 
is something these apps are selling, sure. But it also makes sense to me. Some data, it appears, can be good. Even freeing. Act three, done. So where do we land with all this? If we're just talking about running, you know, not the carceral state, not late stage capitalism, not the encroachment of the gig economy, not social media, but the singular act of pushing the earth down with your feet, to quote Charlie Dark of Run Dem Crew in London, then competition and optimization are not necessarily a bad thing. Because we've quantified ourselves, we've improved our gates, our diets, our lifespans, and we smash our ceilings on our run. The four-minute mile? Come on, that's literally child's play at this point. Quantifying ourselves, in that sense, is the most logical thing in the sports world. I feel good on a run after I eat oatmeal and get nine hours, so I'm going to eat oatmeal and get nine hours. It's natural to want to know what's behind the runs when everything hits. Maybe in this way, the data is not so far from the pure enjoyment of a race. Not so far from a feels PB. A feels PB, a feels personal best, by the way, is a race or a run where you may not have hit your quantitative personal best, but you felt amazing. I think this is a beautiful and important idea. In doing my research for this episode, I found tucked away online somewhere an article by Steve Magnus, a track coach at the University of Houston and an author and lecturer. In this article, he's discussing training with GPS. He references Matthew Crawford's book, The World Beyond Your Head, which is another tome that argues against being online. Magnus, in the article, takes a stand on running watches, saying that runners should wean themselves off them or not use them at all, since delegating your pace to an out-of-body app, to quote him, slackens the bond between perception and action. He's saying it takes the head away from the body. Relying on a measurement from outside of your body makes reaction time slower, and offloads some really important functions to a watch. Functions like split-second decisions about passing runners, covering gaps, finding a position in a pack. The things that he calls the way we figure our way through a race. Magnus is speaking specifically about races, but I think that this kind of mindfulness applies to runs of any kind. Is it right to slow down when you hit a distance mark of your watch? Are you slowing down because your body tells you? Or because the numbers of your watch became round? Does that make biological sense? To clarify, Magnus is saying less that these apps or their granular measurements are bad, but relying on them in the act of running creates a wall between ourselves and our bodies. It takes us out of our experience. And in this light, all the homework about quantification and surveillance starts kind of making sense. Metrics might make us faster or more efficient, but they won't make us more aware. At the risk of sounding like a full-fledged hippie, what Magnus is saying is a big friggin' deal, and it feels like part of the answer I've been looking for. Even if we're not super competitive, I think we can still learn a lot here. Even bodies that don't run sub-three-hour marathons are smart, and we should listen to them. Which could mean less tracking, or not constant tracking, or maybe only tracking certain things, or moving beyond it completely. While there is no one way, I think we can assume the belief that apps with 20-person engineering teams are not more in tune with our bodies than we are. 
This is not a far-fetched idea. I just think maybe it takes some practice. For example, I couldn't tell you how far away my desk is from my couch, but I can, despite my quantitative aversion, pretty accurately estimate how long a run is in both kilometers and miles. Or Ryan, he said he could gauge his heart rate variability without monitors. Or Sam, who helped me write this episode, has predator vision and can figure out his dinner's macronutrient breakdown just by looking at it. Maybe these examples point out that we're missing the fact that runners, shit people, can tune into our bodies if we listen. And if we take in this data, we can figure out ourselves and become unhooked, maybe just for a bit, from the surveillance capitalism machine. It takes time, and it'll fuck up your splits before it becomes second nature, but maybe this time spent, this progress and practice of growing awareness is like the whole point. We seem to give ourselves less credit than we should and have a narrower understanding of progress than what it actually is. Some value lies in the quantitative, sure, money, likes, and a good marathon time, especially if your livelihood depends on it. But for those of us with the freedom to try something new, to move away from performance and into a beginner, a practice mindset, maybe we could find some presence here. Maybe instead of looking at miles ran or pace, we could aim for a feels PB. Or my favorite thing, listen as our footsteps match up with our running buddies. Or watch our breath or check out cute dogs, or master a Nicki Minaj impersonation as we listen to Megatron on repeat for 6.5k. Just kidding, who would ever do that? I would never do that, of course not. Point is, none of these tactics are better or worse than the quantitative ones. At the end of the day, we're all still runners, and it's good to do that. Be active, have goals, apps, or new apps. It's just that it feels for me like unhooking is a way to get closer with the actual act of what running is and what it does for me. I care about the numbers and goals, but honestly, optimizing my potential sounds exhausting. So I'm just gonna go for a run and take a much needed break from a life full of work. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sydney Allen Ash. It was written by Sam Reese and me and featured original music by Young Clancy. Thanks for listening. 